Good morning, New Life Church, and to all of our visitors that are joining us online. Uh, we are grateful that you are worshiping with us this morning on our Lord's Day here in the, the Gulf region. We have been going through the book of Judges, and uh, we hope that you have been blessed through the series. Today, we are already in chapter 9, and I'm sure you've already recognized there's a familiar pattern of, of sin and oppression and then crying out to God and then rescue by a judge. Well, today, all of that in our passage is not there. It's absent. Instead, we have this bloodthirsty tyrant by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech is the son of Gideon's servant girl or, or concubine. And uh, unlike the judges in this book, he is not raised up by the Lord. He is not a judge or a deliverer of Israel. Rather, he he seeks his own greatness and power for himself by appealing to people's selfish nature and then by wiping out all of his possible opponents, even them who are his half-brothers. And then he gets funded to do this by money from a pagan temple. So Abimelech is really not a, a good character or an example of a good leader at all or what a good leader even should be. In fact, he's the perfect example of what a leader shouldn't be. And I think that's why the Lord has left him here in these pages of the Bible for us to learn from. He was a, a man who, who led by force, and he, he murdered his opposition, and he led in such a manner that even his, his subjects wanted to, to destroy him. And in contrast to to, his posit to, to the positive leadership of, of his father, Abimelech focused on his own personal gain, and he hurt many people in the process. So today, because we're looking at 57 verses, we're not going to read all of those this morning. We're just going to look at the main um, verses in our passage as we go through this narrative together, and I'll be able to explain it to you in that way. But let's pray before the Lord this morning and ask his blessings on the preaching of his word. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning and we are confronted by a really wicked man. And we see again and we remind it again that the Bible is so real and so appropriate for our lives. And even these, these, these horrible details that are left in the scriptures are there for us to learn from. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us. We pray the Spirit of God would teach us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would hear what your word has to say today and that we would respond to it in a, in a positive way. For your glory, Lord, and, and for our joy. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I read a story of a, a woman who bought an expensive coat in New York and lost a button from this coat. And she went back to the shop where she bought this coat and asked if she could purchase a, a spare button that she could sew back onto the coat. And the shopkeeper told her that they didn't actually have um, extra buttons. They didn't have any of the buttons. So the woman wrote to the, the company that made the coat, and she requested from them if she could get a button from them. So the company replied, and they said, well, we don't, we don't make these, these coats anymore. In fact, uh, they recognized that the coat that she was asking about was a coat that had been stolen. So the company contacts the police, and the police in turn contact this lady, and the lady in turn leads them to 
the shop that was selling these coats. Okay, and eventually the police came to, the detectives came to find out that this shop was, was selling stolen goods. And the owner of the shop, he was buying stolen goods and then selling them to the public. And in due time, he was caught and he was put up in jail. And, and sometimes the, we, we see, we hear stories like this, and, and we don't hear enough of them, but the wheels of, of justice, in, even in our culture, turns very slow. But in God's economy, the providential plan of God, His justice is always turning. His justice is always turning. And God is a just God. He is a God who does not let people get away with their sin. God only lets people get away with things for so long, and we see that here, even in our passage. But that's His mercy, allowing people time to repent. And here we have this account of Abimelech and the Shechemites. And what we see here is that after God has sovereignly used evil things for His purposes, He sovereignly tracks down and punishes the evil. So my first point this morning is Abimelech's rise to power. And we see that in verse 1 to 6. And we're going to read just the first six verses. Judges chapter 9, verse 1 to 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. Verse 4. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, who is Gideon, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. I want to make it clear at the very beginning that Abimelech is a terrible example. In fact, he, he wasn't even a leader. He wasn't even a judge ordained by the Lord. He was wicked. He was selfish. And he was ruthless. He was really rotten to, to the very core of his, of his being. And we see in these first six verses that he even, in fact, was a master manipulator. And using this deceptive manipulation, Abimelech convinced the people to, to side with him and to follow him. Remember back in, in Judges chapter 8, Abimelech's father, Gideon, had made it quite clear before his death that he didn't intend for any of his sons to rule over Israel. Back in Judges chapter 8, verse 23, it tells us that Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In spite of Gideon's words, it seems apparent that the Israelites 
had a different idea. They wanted one of Gideon's sons, or maybe all of Gideon's sons, to rule as their king. They wanted a king. They wanted to be just like the other nations, just like the Canaanites who, were, who they were living amongst. Remember, Gideon, he had 70 sons. Now, the question was, who would be this next king, and who would choose this king to rule over the Israelites? Well, Abimelech, he didn't wait very long. He wasn't intending to wait and to see how this would all work out. He decided to take matters into his own hands. And he knew that his objective was to make himself king. Um, Abimelech's mother, remember, who was a concubine, she lived in, in Shechem. And so this would be the the logical place to stage his attempt to ascend to the throne where he had some family members. And Abimelech had two things in his favor which he exploited to, to rise to power. First, he was the son of, of Gideon. But he, he doesn't point out the fact that um, his mother was, was actually a concubine. He doesn't mention that. He says that he's a son of Gideon. And in his mind... This made him an heir to Gideon's throne, even though Gideon himself wasn't a king. Gideon was respected, he was loved, but he himself told the people he didn't want to be king and he didn't want any of his sons to be king. So he went to Shechem to make an appeal to his relatives. And he presented the matter as though he had an equal claim to the throne. And that was not really the case. His, his other asset was that his mother, whether she was a concubine or not, she lived in Shechem. And of course, she had family. So they were citizens of Shechem. And it would seem that they had some influence over other people in Shechem as well. So Abimelech made his case with his relatives. And then he urges them to influence the other leaders in Shechem so that he can get appointed as, as king. We can see some deceptive manipulation and maneuvering that's really going on behind the scenes here. And this was his appeal. His appeal was quite simple. He says to his relatives, it's better to have one king rather than, than many kings to rule over you. And then he says, if the one king you have is your relative, of course you will find favor. You don't have to worry about another king from another tribe um, hounding you or troubling you. And of course, they took much favor to this. They, they thought this was a, was a good idea. And Abimelech's relatives were successful in, in lobbying for him, in promoting him amongst the, the leaders of Shechem. And not only did the, citizen, uh, the, the citizens and the, and the leaders give their approval to Abimelech as their, as their choice of a king, we see in the passage that they gave him 70 pieces of silver from this pagan idolatrous temple to help support his, his, his party, his, um, his now appeal to become king. But with this money, Abimelech hires these mercenaries, merciless mercenaries, soldiers for hire. And he forges them into a squad of, of hitmen, political hitmen. This sounds like a, a story out of Hollywood, doesn't it? But this is from the Bible. This really happened. Abimelech has become nothing less than, than a terrorist at this point. 
Abimelech, he slays 69 of his brothers in cold blood, in premeditated murder. And what was his motive? Well, he wanted to be king. And he wanted to make certain that none of his brothers would make a claim to this throne. So here, in the, in the spirit of, of Joseph Stalin or, or Adolf Hitler, he orders the, the execution of those he perceives to be a threat to his throne, to his own brothers. And he kills 69 of his brothers, except for one. He wanted to kill 70. He wanted to kill all of them. But one escapes by the name of Jotham. And he hides, and he was um, able to escape the slaughter. And now our author turns the attention to, to Jotham in our passage and here, from verse 7 to verse 21, we have, the, we have my second point. We see Jotham's warning. Jotham's warning. So Josh, Jotham, he gets word to the, the leaders of Shechem, the ones who had appointed Abimelech as their king. And, and he stands on a mountain where everybody could hear him, on a mount. And it tells us it's Mount Gerizim. And, and he speaks very powerfully and very loud to those in, in Shechem who were responsible for the death of his brothers. And his words, I think, are, are more directed at the, the leaders of Shechem than they are directed at um, Abimelech. And God's, God's wrath, we see, is, is kindled against these leaders of, of Shechem. And God speaks through Jotham as a prophet. He uses Jotham to speak and declare his words to the people around them. In Judges chapter 9, verse 7, it tells us, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. So Josh, Jotham here first tells his, his audience a parable. And then he explains the meaning and the, the application of this parable. And he tells a story of trees. And the trees wanted one of their fellow trees to, to rule over them as the king. So they first approached an olive tree and asked if this olive tree would rule over them. And the olive tree responds in verse 9. He says that it had better things to do than, than just to sway above the other trees. So having been refused now, the trees offer the kingship to a fig tree which refuses for exactly the, the same reasons. And then the offer is next made to a, a grapevine. And, it, and it, of course, the grapevine also refuses to give up a productive role for one of just um, swaying over the other trees. And, and he thinks it's a, a worthless effort. He doesn't want to do that. So finally, in desperation, the trees come together and offer the kingship to the thorn bush. And of course, the, the thorn bush, he accepts this offer um, because he's going to benefit much more than, than anybody else. He doesn't have shade to offer anybody. He's a thorn bush. He's a shrub. But he gives terms and conditions to be their king, even though he's got nothing to offer them. He gives his terms and he threatens the other trees and he he pronounces severe penalties for those who, who will not submit to his, his rule or to his authority. 
So just in case anyone misses the point of, of the parable, Jotham, he spells it out very clearly. There's nothing vague here in this parable. Because he wants the people of Shechem to understand what God is speaking. And he tells him this parable is about justice and this parable is about integrity. And this parable is about the appointment of Abimelech as the king. Was it done in righteousness? Was it done in integrity? And he says, if it was, then let the people take pleasure in their king. But if they have done this thing in a, in a wrong way, then this curse must come upon them. This curse must come upon him. Look at verse 19 and verse 20. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel, who, who is Gideon, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. So in spite of Jotham's warnings, the, the Shechemites let Abimelech continue to, to be their king. And during this time, Abimelech lived in Arumah. We see that in verse 41. This is not even close to Shechem. It's a city located about five miles southeast of, of Shechem. And at the end of, of three years, the, the Shechemites were beginning to, to wonder and they were beginning to sense his true intentions. He never really cared for this Shechemites or the village or the, the tribe or even his relatives. He had bigger motives to rule the complete tribes of Israel. He wanted to be the king, not just a small tri tribute and eventually one thing leads to the next. And we see the warning of Jotham is fulfilled. And that's my third point in verse 22 to verse 57. We see Jotham's warning fulfilled. So the author is very careful to, to let the, the reader know that eventually after three years, these curses that Jotham spoke about were fulfilled. It took time, but after three years they were fulfilled. The word of the Lord from Jotham came true. Look at Judges chapter 9 at verse 56 and verse 57. So thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Obviously, God was not pleased with Abimelech's life. But, but God took this malicious, self-serving person and even his plans, and he made this corrupt leader, and he used this corrupt leader to fulfill his purposes. Look back at verse 23, Judges 9 verse 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So here we see the death of 
Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem was not something that happened by chance. Chance is not here in the picture at all. Coincidence is not mentioned once in the Bible. Luck is not a word that God uses or that is in the God's word. God caused the words of Jotham to be fulfilled by the events that are described here in our text, which he providentially brought to pass in his timing. And what happens here is, uh, is that over time, God changes the hearts of the, the Shechemites who had elected Bimelech as their king. And almost immediately, a civil war breaks out between those loyal to Abimelech. And of course, this murderer, this usurper, and those who have had a change of heart about following him as their king, they, they end up fighting each other. But Abimelech still, he has some supporters and he's able to stamp out some of the rebellion. And we read about him burning hundreds of people in, in a tower in order to quench this rebellion that's happening. The tower in Shechem. But when he tries the same trick the next day, an anonymous woman, we don't know her name, she drops a, a millstone on his head. But it doesn't quite finish him off. It cracks his skull, the Bible says. But he doesn't want to die by the hands of a, of a, of a woman. So he calls out to his armor bearer. He says, please, you need to kill me. And of course, the, the armor bearer obliges him. And Abimelech's bloody reign is, is over. End of story. Roll the credits. Strange story, true story, inspired by God, allowed by the Lord for His purposes. But what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this bloody tale? And the events depicted in our, in our text occurred many years ago, but they still have much to say to, to men and women and even children today. That is because God has not changed. And neither has, has man, mankind. And the corruption that we read about in our text is, is the same in essence as the corruption that we see on the television, that we read about in the, the newspapers daily. So I want us to consider four lessons this morning that we can learn from the story, from our text this morning. And the first lesson that we see is that God's judgment is slow. And it is subtle, sometimes subtle, but it is always sure. Let me repeat that if you're taking notes. God's judgment is slow, sometimes subtle, but it is always sure. Judges 9 is, is a book full of action. But I hope you noticed as you read this, this um, chapter, there's one thing that's missing in this chapter. And that is the covenant name of God. The covenant name of God is Yahweh. And it's found 175 times in, in the book of Judges, but not once in chapter 9. Not once in chapter 9. And God was no longer prominent in the lives of the Israelites. They had fallen more and more under the influence of the, the Canaanites. And they were now worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. As one person 
violently rises to power and is overtaken by another bloody challenger. It's easy to think that God is absent, that God has left. We heard stories like this before. It's just one tragedy after another, evil upon evil. But let's not forget and let's not pretend that God was absent. Let's not forget that God is still sovereign. He is still in control over a very difficult time. I hope that resonates with you as we're going through a difficult time. God is still sovereign and in control. And he may have been absent from their thoughts, but he was still very much in control. Only until Judges chapter 9, verse 56 and 57, which we read, read earlier on, we see Abimelech die, and the, the narrator lifts the, the curtain for us to see that it was God. It was God who returned the evil of Abimelech. It was God who made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. The only time we hear the name of God. We see that God had been working all along. All along. The invisible hand of God in history's glove. Using sinful men as his instruments. Even when they don't know that they're being used. And God is that powerful. Let's not forget that. He can use even his enemies to accomplish his will. And not because of their lives or because of their choices, but in spite of them. And the citizens of Shechem were punished for their part in Abimelech's sin. And Joseph understood this principle. And remember, in, back in Genesis, declared to his brothers, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Maybe you've heard of the name of Voltaire. He was a famous French philosopher and an unbeliever. And he died in 1778. But before he died, he predicted that within a hundred years of his death, Christianity would be swept from existence and pass into history. Well, what happened? Well, we know what happened. His prophecy didn't come to fulfillment. In fact, Voltaire passed into history. And the circulation of the Bible continues to increase in almost every part of the world, carrying blessings and the gospel everywhere and for everybody. But the ironic part of the story is that 50 years after his prediction of the demise of Christianity, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used his house and the printing press in his house to print hundreds and thousands of Bibles. God can use people in spite of their opposition for his glory. And he used the Bimelech to destroy Israel's enemies and their pagan worship and to teach us today what we shouldn't be doing what not to do. And this world wants us to think and even assume that, that God is absent, that God has left. But we need to read stories like this. We need to be reminded from stories like this and even a Voltaire's that show us that in the end, God will have the last word. 
This also warns us that we must never let the slowness of God's judgment lull us into a sense of complacency that, that God is not around. As the Apostle Paul, he said, we are always liable to mistake God's patience in judgment for his absence. And that was the fatal error even in Noah's day. And it's the fatal error for many today. People say, well, I can repent tomorrow. Tomorrow's another day. Let me just enjoy my sin today. Tomorrow will be different. But it's not different. It's the same. Abimelech must have thought the same thing. And so don't use what God intends to be space, time, for you to turn to Him as an opportunity to sin. The second lesson we learn is that you reap what you sow. Here was a man who ruthlessly murdered his own family on a, on a large stone. And in the end, he was killed by a stone that was dropped on his head. And the Bible even makes the point that when the rock came down on Abimelech's head, that it, that it broke his skull. Why is this important? Why all the details? Well, that was the same head, remember, that wore the crown that assumed to be the king. But God didn't put the crown on Abimelech's head. Abimelech manipulated the people of, of Shechem to crown him king. But God ultimately saw that the skull of Abimelech was broken, which symbolized that he was not ever the true king. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 reminds us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What this practically means is that God tracks down His people and holds them accountable. And one may appear to, to get away with evil, but one will never get away with evil. God is not absent from crime and, and evil. He sees it all, and He will repay it all. And maybe you're listening today, and you, you clearly know that you've been living in sin, and that you've been hiding your sin. And nothing really bad at this point has, has happened to you. You have a good life, and nobody knows what's going on around you. You're living two different lives. But you need to take serious note of this text this morning. There will be a time where God will track you down. If you have, ever, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus, you need to know that every sin you have ever committed is on file before God. And He will track you down and punish you in everlasting fire. Or if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in His death, burial, and resurrection, He will pay for your sins on, on your behalf. But sin is never just swept under the carpet. Sin is never just forgotten or the file is lost. There has to be a payment for sin. 
Because God is the just judge. He is the righteous judge. He is holy. And no sin can enter his presence. Sin has to be paid for. Either by you or by his son, Jesus Christ. Who came to this earth and took on human flesh so that he could offer up his body as a payment for your sin. If you're a believer this morning, keep in mind that even believers will be judged. There's, there's a, a judgment called the Bema Seat Judgment, where every single one of us will face. We won't be judged for our sin because Christ has already ju been judged for that, but we will be judged for our works. And our relationship with God is based not on our, on our feelings or, or based on what we can and cannot get away with. Our relationship with God is based on truth. It's based in faith. And when we sin, we need to be truthful and confess our sins. And the Bible says if we do that, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The third thing that we can learn is that the problem isn't out there. The problem is, is in here. The problem is within. You know, corruption doesn't only come from the outside. It's here, right in the inside. Now, living amongst the Canaanites, remember the Israelites should have destroyed them, but living now amongst them, they were influenced by them. And this resulted in, in God's people serving Canaanite gods and following Canaanite practices. Wicked, wicked sinful practices. And of course, they were influenced from without. But we see, beginning with Gideon, we see Israel now functioning at a, at a new low like never before. Now the corruption is coming from within, from within Israel's leadership. It was Gideon who made the ephod, which the, the Israelites worshipped. Now the Israelites are the source of corruption for their fellow Israelites. And Abimelech is the first ruler in Judges that actually causes the oppression. Before him, oppression seemed to come from the outside. But now the foreign nations aren't the problem. Israel is its own problem. In fact, it's been its own problem all along. And the problem in our lives are never just out there. It's not our circumstances. It's not our peers who are making our lives miserable. COVID-19 is, is not our problem. Our greatest problem has always been and will always be sin. And often, as in this story, God's punishment for that sin is simply to step back and let sin run its course. And let us be burned by the, the very fire which we started, that we so enjoy playing with. And that's what you see with Abimelech. You don't see thunderbolts from, from heaven. You don't see an earthquake. You don't see a major flood. You just see people reaping the consequences of their own sinful 
choices. And God doesn't need to invent or create punishment. We do that ourselves. C.S. Lewis, he, he once said, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to God's judgment is a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and to give them a fresh start, offering every miraculous help? But He has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what He does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Thy will be done. Well, let me go straight into our fourth point this morning. The last application. We need a new king. We need a better king. We need the perfect king, the righteous king. And like Israel, we can come to God thinking that he is nothing more than a, than a, a genie in a bottle that we, that we rub when we want our, our wishes fulfilled. And we use him to get what we want, or we use him to deliver us from, from our problems, or deliver us from our, from our pain, or, or deliver us from our broken relationships, or our, or our lack of money. We might need those things, but that's never what we need the most. And since we are our own curse, we need freedom from our own hearts. We're constantly tricked into thinking that, that money and and education, or the government can fix all of our problems. But history doesn't bear that out at all. The richest people aren't necessarily the happiest people. Well, they aren't necessarily the more virtuous and, and complete people. And education doesn't magically make us saints. Money may give us means. Education may give us ideas. And both will give us a form of power, but... Neither of these will give us freedom from our sins. Alexander Solzhenstein, he was a, a Russian novelist. I'm sure I've pronounced his name wrong. He was a historian and a philosopher. But he was sent to a prison labor camp because he was criticizing the Soviet um, communist government. But while he was in prison, he wrote these words, very true. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. He said, then we could separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human being. And who is willing to destroy his own heart? We think that the, the politicians are the problem. We think that the, the lawyers are the, the problem, or even the financial brokers on Wall Street are the, are the problem, or our, our bosses are the problem, or our spouses, or our mothers and our fathers are the reason for our problems, or even our siblings. But the curse isn't around us. The curse is within us. And we need to be freed from this curse. And that's why despite all the the messiness, all these brutal stories like we have here about Abimelech, they all point us towards a Savior. 
a savior that we need, to the one who would not only fix our situation, but he would fix us permanently and perfectly. Jesus is the true king that, that we need. He's the better judge who can free us from our our own bondage to our sinful selves. And salvation isn't found in a better situation. Please don't believe the lies of the prosperity gospel. Salvation isn't found in health, wealth, or happiness. Salvation is found in the embrace of the Savior. The place to begin in our relationship with the King is through humble submission to him that's why jesus said unless you become like a little child you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven later on jesus also says whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted and all the fame and all the wealth and all the accomplishments cannot forgive your sin it cannot conquer the grave it cannot provide lasting fulfillment in this life and cannot give you peace with God but Jesus can and that is the good news folks that is the good news that we hear from this passage and all he requires is that we humbly admit our need for him that we humbly recognize the sin within and our bondage to it and our need for a perfect savior and submit to him daily will you do that this morning will you do that this morning will you pray with me father we thank you for teaching us this morning from your word and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do the work that needs to be done in all of our lives for your glory and for our joy. You know our hearts better than we know ourselves, Lord. You know the sins that we entertain. You know the sins that we cover up. You know the sins that we sweep under the carpet. Please, Lord, we pray this morning. May we be honest with you. May we be honest with ourselves. May we be honest with the spirit of God this morning speaking to us. And grant us the repentance we need. Repentance that leads to peace with you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you do your work amongst us for your glory. We ask this prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.